Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast after a week off, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here, as always, with John Mitchell. We're going to be talking about what might be happening in the 2020 season, some contingency plans as more you know, more news starts to develop around how different schools are handling the coronavirus situation. And then in our second segment, because we've been, you know, locked down for several months now, uh, many people have become familiar with Zoom and Skype and Google Hangouts and all sorts of telecommuting technologies. And so we're going to basically look at what three Heisman Trophy winners from the past would we love to be able to get on a video conference, and what would we want to talk with them about. Uh, So, you know, that's what we've got in store for us this week. Before we dive in, though, uh, we've had the week off, John, so I just got to ask, how are things going in your part of the world? Uh, Going okay, you know, restrictions being lessened in a lot of places, a bit uh, nerve-wracking, I guess, trying to function back. And I live in a city where, you know, it's touristy, so a lot of people are flocking down here and making it all the more terrible in that vein. So um, I wish they'd stay at home and leave me alone, basically. (laughs) Oh, I, I completely understand. And, you know, being in a college town, the fact that it's summer right now, you wouldn't have seen nearly as many people around anyway. Uh, but it's still it, it's still really weird to to just kind of look out and see uh, you know a massively smaller town than you would expect, and that that's been probably the weirdest thing for me in this whole situation. Um, you know, it, it's not too difficult for me to to work, as it were, given you know I'm a historian uh, it, as long as. I have access to some kind of research materials. I can work on some project or another. So I'm lucky in that regard. I know we're at a point of unemployment where we're reaching Great Depression levels. So, you know, I hope everybody's staying safe. I know it's a hell of a burden that the entire country has to bear, but it only works if we all bear it in our own way. So on that note, let's at least talk a little bit because, you know, people are listening to more podcasts, so hopefully you're listening to ours. Uh, you know, the big story I think that's, that's come up this week, and this is one that, that you definitely said we had to hit on, John, obviously as a Crimson Tide guy, but... Alabama and TCU are talking about playing their season opener against one another uh, since both of them are slated to play California schools in that opening weekend, and we don't know what's going to happen. But I think this opens a great discussion on what's happening more broadly. We're seeing discussions within certain conferences about the possibility of playing next year. We're seeing other conferences much more cautious and and some states much more cautious than others. Um, So before we go any further into that, though, John, I, I, you know, being being a Tide fan, what do you think about the possibility of an Alabama TCU opener? And would that 
satisfy you in some way, given that they were, you know, Alabama was set to play USC? Yeah, I mean, I think an argument could be made that TCU is going to be a better team than USC next season. I, I don't think that uh, there's too big of a difference um, merit-wise with either of those programs anymore. Um, you know, TCU has been the more consistent team over the last decade than USC. So, you know, I, I think it's smart for programs to be looking at the contingency plans. And, you know, it makes sense for, for both teams. Alabama would still get to keep their high-profile season opener at a neutral site that they like. And TCU is kind of the perfect opponent because they're right down the street uh, from Jerry World in Dallas. And, you know, like you said, they're slated to open the season in Berkeley against California. And, you know, there's a chance that games aren't going to be able to be played in California at the beginning of the year with or without fans. And, I mean, you know, you brought up the fact that we could see some conferences like the SEC, for instance, that seems – hell-bent on having a season one way or another, whether the rest of the um, college football programs and conferences decide to go forward or not, there's going to be something there for that. And I think it also comes back to the point that there's just no one in charge of college football. So all these conferences can, you know, unilaterally decide that they're going to play a season, you know, the NCAA be damned at this point, because they can choose to do that if they want to. There's nothing the NCAA can really step in and do because no one's there's no college football czar or something like that or commissioner or anything like that to really take the lead so I find it interesting and we keep seeing contingency plans popping up all over the place and then we keep seeing more and more cutbacks you know we just recently there was a story too Zach I'm sure you saw coming out from the Mac where they're no longer going to allow their programs to pay for hotels the night before home games. Uh, it's tradition across college football that every, you know, major program that I know of at least has their team stay in a hotel, even at a home game, just because it keeps all their players herded and collected together. You don't have to worry. You can monitor curfews a lot easier than people staying in their own dorm rooms or their off-campus houses or what have you. So, I think that's interesting. I think that makes a lot of sense from a, a cost-cutting standpoint because it's honestly, you know, obviously it makes sense in terms of keeping people together and being able to monitor curfew. But it's also, you know, not a necessity, so that's one thing. But I would guess we're going to see other conferences also adopt that at some point with it not just being the MAC. I think they were the first, you know, to really push forward with that. So, you know, it's it's strange times for sure. We're, we've definitely entered uncharted waters for everyone when it comes to this. So I, I don't know, I, a lot of contingency plans, but the one thing that I would say about contingency plans is it makes me feel good that it does at least people are still planning on us having college football in the fall in some capacity because they're trying to do whatever it takes to make it work somehow. Well, you know, I think it's definitely a, a, a big batch of self-interest trying to at least keep things on the table. And, you know, I, from the outset, we've cautioned, you know, recognized that this probably isn't going to look like business as usual. Something might be played. And, you know, we talked about the article I put out about the 1918 season and what happened with Spanish flu. And 
you know, some conferences didn't play. The Missouri Valley Conference, what's, you know, became the Big 8, became, you know, the Big 12. They didn't play a season. It, they just, the entire conference took it off. So it wouldn't be unprecedented for somebody like the Pac-12 to come out and say, we're just not doing it this year. It would obviously be a much bigger financial hit these days than it was 102 years ago. But it's not unprecedented. And, you know, I, I think this Alabama TCU sort of finagling here, this idea of coming up with contingencies, is something we could see other teams doing, especially because it seems like with, you know, the stipulations that are in place in California and the fact that Oregon and Washington were also very cautious about this early, um... It really makes you think that if any conference is going to sit it out, it's probably going to be the Pac-12 and or the Mountain West because of, you know, their geographies and the fact that so much of their operation is dependent on having the California schools in the mix, you know. You could play ostensibly a Pac-12 season as a Pac-8 season without any of the California schools, but that becomes a seriously diminished conference off the bat just from a television standpoint, you know, not having USC in the mix, not having Stanford, not having Cal and UCLA, all of those, whether or not they're good, are big sellers, you know, big alumni bases, big historic programs, and losing that off your bottom line is huge. Um, but, you know, I think it's something that people are starting to recognize. And so I was looking through the schedule. I just got to throw a couple of these other ones at you quick because I think it'd be really interesting thinking about teams following the lead of Alabama and TCU on this if the Pac-12 drops out or the Mountain West. So, you know, like week one, another matchup we could potentially see them arrange if it works out that way is Oklahoma State-Michigan. Uh, the Cowboys were slated to play Oregon State. Michigan is supposed to be playing Washington, so you could easily merge those two up. Week two, you get a similar situation. Obviously, Ohio State is supposed to be going to Eugene to play Oregon at Autzen. If that doesn't happen, Ohio State's going to want somebody to play there, obviously. Um, I didn't really see any sort of Power 5 matchup that they could get that's equivalent to Oregon, but, you know, they could either opt for a game closer to home with Toledo, who's probably going to miss out on playing San Diego State, or they could play uh, an even bigger group of five team in Houston, who, would you know, is supposed to be playing Washington State that second weekend. Uh, the last one I was looking at, you know, a week later, week three, you've got Penn State, who's supposed to be playing San Jose State. And with what we've seen from the Cal State University system, San Diego State, San Jose State, Fresno State probably aren't playing football next season. Um, it doesn't look like they're going to be having on-campus operations at any of those schools, and I'd be shocked if they brought football back to them. Um, so, you know, Penn State's going to need somebody in week three. Texas A&M might be out a game with Colorado potentially being off the schedule with the Pac-12 all sitting out. So 
Penn State, Texas A&M, that'd be a hell of a duel for week three. I think both of them would be playing, you know, they'd be they'd be buying up to get that matchup for each of them. So, I, you know, I, I think schools need to start thinking about contingencies like this. Yeah, I think you'll see it more and more. This is probably, you know, the first domino per se. Obviously, nothing's official. You know, USC's athletic director came out and said that the plan is still for them to play Alabama week one, um, obviously, and that's what, you know, everyone hopes is what's going to happen. You know, I, I find it interesting because I even saw some people talking about, you know, just having regional games, basically, right? Just having conference-only games, maybe even doing a couple home and aways. You know, how, how crazy would it be to have two Iron Bowls next season or, or two matchups between Ohio State and Michigan in one spot? Maybe Michigan could finally beat Ohio State. I don't know. Um, but I thought that was interesting. It, what's also kind of interesting in that standpoint is – you know, how geographically crazy some of the conferences are nowadays and how much more difficult that makes it. Like, look how difficult it would be for for West Virginia to play football in 2020 if you could only do it regionally with them being in the Big 12 and the majority of those schools being halfway across the country or or more. And then, you know, so I thought that was kind of interesting. And another point that I've noticed from college basketball, if you've seen a lot of, the scheduling going on in college basketball right now is you're getting a lot more regionally um, regional games. A lot of teams playing teams closer to them because it cuts down on you know travel expenses and all that. And I think that's another argument for against college football's crazy twenty year out scheduling that happens. I mean, we see all the time every offseason we see games scheduled for fifteen to twenty years from now, and you never know what's going to be going on that long from now like most of the the games scheduled for for 2020 non-conference wise were scheduled five to ten years ago so i I wonder if something like this ends up changing how college football programs make out their non-conference schedules to keep their options a little more open uh for a longer period of time like college basketball teams do yeah i mean some of the scheduling is getting absolutely ridiculous you know, having a schedule a couple of years out allows you to plan ahead of time financially. Having scheduling, you know, for instance, last March um, before the 2019 season, Clemson and Oklahoma revealed that they, you know, they scheduled their home and home series in 2035 and 2036. It's 17 years down the line and they have games scheduled already, you know. Some conferences are going to have the same membership in 16, 17 years. And teams are already trying to base their schedule around, will this team still be good by then? I mean, both Clemson and Oklahoma could fall right back into irrelevance by that point and... You know, what's the point then? So I, I'm with you. I think, you know, conference, you know, conference arrangements and the fact that some are looking at just playing conference-only schedules, playing home-and-home home series, however it goes. If you can keep it regional, I think that's a great idea. Um, I've been on something of a writing sabbatical at the at Saturday Blitz recently um, as I've been getting through finals week and prepping for PhD qualifying exams. 
but you know, I'm working on something soon to look at. You know, the fact is, I think conferences are going to have to start thinking a lot more regionally really soon in terms of how they band together, how they schedule, and I think you're you're going to see conferences get smaller. You know, I think the especially the power conferences are seeing having something so geographically dispersed solely so that you get to 12 teams or 14 teams or whatever. It's not necessary and it's, it's not necessarily in your best interest. Um, you know, the big 12 has really shown that having 10 being a little more streamlined, the fact that now the rules have been changed so that you can even have a conference championship game at the end of that sort of season. But you could see 18 conferences. I think, honestly, you know, that was the norm forever in college football. The Big 8, the Pac-8, you know, the Big 10 was the Big 10 because it was that, you know, you had 10 teams. The SEC was 10 teams forever until 1992 when they bring in Arkansas and South Carolina. The ACC was in that same boat. And... I think sort of streamlining to an 8 to 10 model again is going to be really valuable because, like you said, something like a West Virginia for a league that's primarily based around, uh, you know, Texas, Oklahoma, that sort of Great Plains region, it's ridiculous. You know, West Virginia is closer to Big Ten country than... Rutgers and Maryland are, for goodness sake, you know? I mean, they're within the geographic footprint that even Penn State puts in to that conference. So that would be a more logical fit. Obviously, you could say the same thing about an inland school like Louisville playing in the Atlantic Coast Conference. That's another completely, you know, bonkers situation. But you have this all across the country. I think... You know, as we start to see more and more that streaming services are going to start stepping up more and more for football rights, I think that's the next thing you're going to see in contract negotiations is that you're, you know, conferences and the programs within them are going to want the sort of flexibility that they can get onto those emergent platforms. College football has always been a sport based around its relationship with the media. It is a very media-driven sport. It has been since newspapers dominated the game, you know, back in the 19th century. So they're going to jump on whatever media, you know, gives them the best bang for their buck. I, You know, you could see Hulu. You could see... YouTube video, you could see a Netflix, you could see any of these folks stepping up for those kind of rights in a way that is going to change the game again. You know, I mean, it's the same thing that cable did in the wake of the 1984 Supreme Court decision that untethered TV rights from the NCAA's control. And so... You know, I think getting smaller, getting leaner, recognizing that having a giant footprint isn't nearly as important for TV rights as having good programs playing good programs and having them play meaningful games against one another. And honestly, 
What are the most meaningful games? They're rivalry games. How do you develop a rivalry game? Well, unless you're Notre Dame and you develop hate against every school across the damn country, you're developing them against your local rivals. You're developing against the school down the road, like Oregon, Oregon State, or even across borders, like Wyoming and Colorado State. Yes, I chose those examples deliberately. But, you know, you're developing these sort of nodes of hatred within a region, and... I think we need to get back to that because if you start having that regionality again, it sets it up even better for something like an expanded playoff where it's, you know, you're playing Northwest against Mid-Atlantic. You're playing Midwest against Great Plains. You're playing, you know, Atlantic Coast against Deep South. You're playing Texas against the Southwest. You're playing the Northwest against the California Coast. Those sorts of things would make it just as, you know... Uh, uh, it'd make it even more meaningful in terms of a playoff because you can crown a true national champion and see everybody get their, you know, who's the best team from this region, throw them all into a pot. Yeah, I I think the expanded playoff is a good point. That was a point I was going to make too, is that, you know, you're also cutting down the number of games played. If everyone's in an 18 conference, you play seven conference games. Say you throw in three non-conference games for everybody. Everybody plays a 10-game schedule. So if you had a 64-team, for instance, um, bracket, if, even if we got that wild and went college basketball 64, you know, you're talking about what? Six rounds. Yeah, so six more games. So 16 um, total games at, at maximum for two teams, and everybody else would play 15 or less. So, I mean, and I mean, we're not – ever going to get to 64 I don't think but even if you went 16 32 something like that you're talking about four or five more games you're talking about playing the exact same amount of games that you know the national championship teams played this year you know both Clemson and LSU played 15 games so that would make that that much more viable oh yeah and I mean last season you saw North Dakota State played 16 games so that too is not unprecedented it, you know, I mean, hell, Gill was doing it back in 1890-something. So, I think it was 1893 or 1894, they, they ended up winning the national championship after going 16-0. So, it, it can happen. And I like the idea of having a smaller regular season like that. You know, you have seven plus three if you really want a conference championship game because you want to eliminate the possibility of the game, you know, the head-to-head having been a fluke, great. Um, I don't think it's necessary, but great. Um, But, you know, I think the other thing that we need to think about before we go to break quickly here is, you know, we talked about, you know, what's going to happen if some conferences can play and others can't. And it, it's all good and well to have conference-only schedules, to only have regional schedules, if you're within a conference. The two thing, you know, and if you're in a Power Five conference, really, because the two thing, you know, the, the I have three things left on the table I want to talk about. First of all, how does this impact independence? Now we know Notre Dame's going to be okay. They have six games already scheduled within the ACC. 
I'm sure the ACC would honor all six of those games. And if they, you know, in an abbreviated season, if they even get to play two, three more games, they'll have their pick of suitors. You know, USC wants to keep that game on their schedule. If the Pac-12 can play, it's definitely going to happen. Um, you know, the Wisconsin game that's supposed to be played at Lambeau Field, they're definitely going to want to keep that on there. If they can't play a team like USC or Stanford building old rivalries, like, you know, if Michigan can only have a regional game in, in the Big Ten or Michigan State can only have a regional game, they're going to jump on that. Um, so, you know, I, I think there are options for a team like Notre Dame, but they're not the only independent. I mean, what maybe Army is okay as well. I, you know, enough schools might glom on to, you know, the Department of Defense might throw enough money their way to say schedule some games against Army. But New Mexico State, Massachusetts, and pardon my language, but those programs are fucked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for Massachusetts at least, it might be. Um pity or whatever, like they, it might be more fair for them not to have to play a 2020 college football season as bad as they've been in recent yeah. years, but no, I, I totally get what you're saying, because, you know, and there, there's so many different variables that go into this that I think people gloss over when they talk about, you know, a conference only or regional only season, because you have your independents who, you know, struggle with that, and then, of course, the smaller conferences are the ones that are going to pay the SBS price. Uh, from the beginning, obviously, the bigger schools tend to lose stand to lose more overall dollars because they have more dollars coming in. But if you look at percentage of profits, it's easily going to be the group of five schools and the independent schools. That's you know not Notre Dame independent schools that are going to lose uh, the most percentage of their revenues. Yeah, I and then that's going to continue to start taking down other sports, right? All the non-revenue sports that we talked about, we've already seen. You know, just this week or the end of last week, uh, I forget which program. I want to say it was Akron cut four non-revenue sports out completely. And, you know, that's just the beginning, I think, of what we're going to continue to see over the next few months and even years. Because this is going to have this is going to have such a more wide ranging and deep impact that I that I think anyone out there is really thinking at the moment, because this isn't going to be over once the coronavirus is, is gone and all that, this is going to have a deep economical impact for decades to come. Yeah, I mean, people are going to have less money to spend at the stadium. They're going to have less money to spend in communities when when they actually can't afford to even travel to a game. Um, you know, it's going to be interesting all down the line. I think you're absolutely right to bring up you know, the group of five, Akron, Bowling Green, have both cut programs in recent weeks. We saw Cincinnati cut their men's soccer program, which has been around since the 70s or the early 80s. So, you know, an iconic program that competed in one of the men's hotbeds in the country um, is gone. You know, this is, you know, we're, we talk specifically about college football, but there are athletes across the country who are getting hit by this big. We saw, um, oh God, what was it? Florida Tech, Division Two Florida Tech completely cut their football program that started only in 2011. So, 
You know, this is even hitting football programs at smaller levels. And the fact is, is if you go to a conference-only schedule, you lose all of those paycheck games that make or break a group of five athletic department budget, that make or break an FCS athletic department budget. So we need to keep an eye on this. It, 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 this is an ongoing story that we're not going to see completely resolved for another couple of years. And I wouldn't be surprised if we saw at least a dozen programs de-emphasize football, you know, drop down to the one double A level. You see fewer programs trying to move up to the one A level. I think you're not going to see very many of those programs in Division One cutting their programs entirely, but moving down to the lower subdivision is something you could easily see for teams that we've mentioned already, a team like Akron, a team like New Mexico State that's independent, Massachusetts could move back down, even UConn, who, you know, we've talked about them as well. Um, but the last question I have to ask you, John, before we go to break, so... Taking all of this into account, some conferences can play, some can't. You know, we imagine some states can play, some can't. Will it be possible to declare a college football playoff champion? I mean, a, a champion, I think, will be declared, but I think this could be the most disputed year of a champion. Like, I remember, um, was it Charles Barkley recently said... Charles Barkley or Shaquille O'Neal, might have been Shaquille O'Neal, who recently said that there's no point in playing the rest of the NBA season because that would be an asterisk by whoever won it. You know, so whoever wins these championships of any sport, with all the differences and all the changes that are likely to take place, there's going to be an asterisk. But I don't really think that's fair because everyone's playing. Everyone who's able to play is still is playing under the same circumstances, right? And it's easier to say that for the NBA because, you know, everyone gets a shot to win in a league like that. It's harder to say for college football. So, I mean, you could have a year where you have four or five teams who claim a national championship, particularly if we're not able to have a college football playoff. Because, I mean, there's precedent across this sport for teams to lay claims, even ridiculous claims, towards national championships. So, I mean, we could have a, a, a hectic year in the, in the record books for sure. Yeah, I think we see another season where you could have two or three champions declared. It certainly won't be... It, it, the college football playoff, I don't think, can operate a playoff. I, I think we, unless you have, at the very least, all Power 5 conferences in the mix uh, able to have their champions, you know, in that final question, it you can't legitimate the college football playoff itself. But as you said, I mean, in 1918, we, we talk about champions from that year. Unfortunately, I can't quote for you exactly who that was off the top of my head, but, you know, um, I'm sure I could find out soon enough for y'all. It was... Uh, they they said Michigan and Pittsburgh were the two teams that, that were declared national champions that year. You know, Eastern football was still playing. But, you know, Michigan was declared a national champion based on a 5-0 and schedule when the year before teams were playing 9, 10, 11 games. 
uh, Pitt ended up playing a four and one schedule under head coach Pop Warner, and uh, you know their only loss coming against Cleveland Naval Reserve. So they were perfect against actual colleges, and um, you know their lone loss was a ten nine loss against the Naval Reserve team there in Cleveland. So. It, a split can happen. I think even if you have some teams with better records than other, we could still see a split happening. I can see. You know I mean, yeah. Put the put the aspirin by it, but those teams hang those banners. You know, that's it's still a national championship for those programs. The same thing. I want to see chaos. Though. I want to see like Vanderbilt go four and six this year and beat somebody really good along the way, and then them claim the national championship. Just I want to see stuff like that. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think the thing is, is the official NCAA selectors, you're going to have a lot of mix. I think if any of them choose Vanderbilt, barring a perfect however many in O season from the Commodores, that selector ought to be reconsidered as an official NCAA selector if they're choosing them in that scenario. But... I'm rooting for chaos as well. Let's make 2007 look pedestrian. Yeah, it almost certainly will at this point. It, it already is. Well, on that note, everybody, let's take our break quickly. When we come back, we're going to be going into a thought experiment. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're talking college football, which may or may not be happening in the 2020 season. But until we know for certain that it's not going to be happening, we're going to be here talking about the the season with you. And even if it doesn't happen, we'll still be yakking about our sorrows together. So stick with us over the coming months. But we just talked about news around the coronavirus and all these contingency plans in our last segment. Because we've all been, uh, you know, having to deal with a new reality around the world, whether or not you're an essential worker and you have to be out the whole time working, uh, whether you're able to work from home, whether you're one of more than 30 million Americans who are now on unemployment, um, you know, whatever your situation is, we're in a new reality So many people are at their homes right now, sheltering in place as much as possible. And you see widespread support for that across the country. So if you can, please do. If you have to go out, please wear a mask. I mean, don't don't buy into these arguments about masculinity and masks. You, you, You see soldiers wear masks. You saw baseball players wearing masks in 1918. Wear a damn mask. Now that that PSA is out of the way, because, you know, I'm crotchety and I've been home so much, let's, uh, let's think a bit, because I don't know about you, John, you know, if you've been keeping in touch with family and friends more by video, but it's certainly something I've been doing. I, you know, um, I got to see my niece earlier on Monday for her second birthday, uh, in a, a Zoom family call. And I was, you know, I did all my classes for the past two months on Zoom. I'm going to be having my oral defense for my PhD qualifying exam next week by Zoom. I'm becoming way too familiar with Zoom. Uh, 
I don't own any stock in Zoom. I'm not like any of those senators that short, you know, had a short sell right before this all went down. Uh, but, you know, I think it's something people are dealing with a lot. So I threw this out to John. And, you know, if you could get three former Heisman Trophy winners on a conference video chat, you know, Zoom, Google Hangouts, how, whatever your platform is, who would you pick and what would you want to talk about? So, John, throw a Heisman winner at me that you'd absolutely love to sit down with in a group and talk, you know, and what you'd want to spitball with them. Pretty much any question as it pertains to who I'd want to talk to in college football begins and ends with Steve Spurrier. So he's the first person who came to mind. Obviously, he falls under the Heisman Trophy uh, category, winning that as the quarterback for Florida. Uh, so, I mean... What to talk about, it'd be easier for me to describe what I wouldn't want to talk about with Steve Spurrier because there's so many things I would want to talk to Steve Spurrier about, you know, from football to, to life to, you know, his opinion on amateurism. He's always had a lot to say about that. That's always been really smart. Uh, from, a, from a personal standpoint, I'd like to hear him rip on the University of Tennessee, you know, Peyton Manning, Philip Fulmer in Tennessee in general. That's always been very funny to me to listen to him uh, to talk about that. So anything and everything would be fun to talk um, with the old ball coach about, you know, from his time at, you know, Duke, for instance, as the head coach there, to coming to Florida, to South Carolina, to his time in the pros working uh, for the Redskins organization. Um, and then, you know, not to mention a, a prolific playing career. Um, at the University of Florida before he went on to become a legendary uh, head coach. And, you know, also he's a big golfer. I love to play golf, so I'm sure we'd have a lot to talk about with that. That's really where I'd want to conduct it, like screw a Zoom call. Like I'd love to go play around the golf with Steve Spurrier, crack open, you know, a, a case of beer between us and just see what happens. I would, I'm sure it would be a great time. Well, hell, that would be awesome, you know. <laughs> Obviously, that falls outside of the purview of this, but even getting to be on a video chat with him would be amazing. Uh, Spurrier definitely fell on my, you know, final short list, but I've talked about him in the recent past on other podcasts, and I didn't want to just kind of go down that same route. Honestly, the first person I had on my list was the first person ever to win a Heisman Trophy. I'd love to sit down and talk with Jay Berwanger, the 1935 winner from the University of Chicago. And, you know, first of all, like, obviously it'd be fun to ask him, how does it feel to have been able to say you, you, you pasted a scar on a future U.S. president since he, you know, belted Gerald Ford in a game between Chicago and Michigan back in 1934 that left a scar on his face? You know, I, I obviously, you know, I scarred, I scarred the U.S. president would be a pretty awesome story to hear about. But the big thing I, I, I and it's one that's always vexed people around the world. You know, Berlanger himself has said he regretted not taking the chance in the past. But I want to ask him, how does he think he would have fared in the NFL? Because, you know, he won the Heisman Trophy in 1935 as the first guy ever named by the Downtown Athletic Club. I don't think it was even officially named the Heisman Trophy yet, if I'm not mistaken. But, you know, he wins the award. 
And then he's picked first overall in the first ever NFL draft in 1936. Um, he decided to, to hold out and maintain his amateur status. Like, there's always been talk around why did he not take the NFL pick. He wanted to be, a, you know, he also ran track and field at uh, the University of Chicago with the Maroons. And he was trying to make the 36 U.S. Olympic team as a decathlete. Um, when he didn't, you know, make the team, when he, he didn't make that final cut to go to Berlin, he did try to sign with the Bears, who still had his rights. And George Hallis offered him 13 13-5 for that se- upcoming season. Berlander wanted 15 grand. He wouldn't settle for 90% of his asking price. They couldn't come to an agreement. He's regretted in the past not taking half, or, you know, years later when he looked back on that season and lost opportunity, he definitely regretted not taking the 13-5 and, you know, negotiating for 90% of what he thought his value was. But I'd love to ask him, how does he think he would have fared in that NFL at that time? And, you know... If he could go back, would he, you know, like, would he settle for that? Would he settle for even less just to to not be left with that question the rest of his life? That's fascinating. I think that's a great choice. So, yeah, like, I I would definitely be interested in that. Um, Leave it to you to go super historical with this kind of stuff. It's very on brand. Um, uh, the, the second guy that came to my mind was Gino Toretta, just because the 1992 college football season's always been um, of interest to me, because uh, as an Alabama fan, for instance, like my dad had this VHS tape of the 92 season that I probably watched a thousand times during my childhood when Alabama wasn't very good, when we were winning three or four you know, games a year. If we got to a bowl game, we were all very excited to go to Shreveport to watch the friggin' Independence Bowl. Uh, so, you know, the 92 season was always like that, um, you know, what I always ex- aspired to see, right? I had always heard about the greatness of this program and had rarely seen, you know, a couple flash-ups like the 99 SEC Championship season. But, you know, I would be fascinated to talk to Gino Toretta specifically about the national title game, the 93 Sugar Bowl that year between Miami and Alabama, um, and what he saw from that all-time Alabama defense. Um, you know, a, just a, a brilliant game plan that Gene Stallings and company had for that game, you know, putting 11 guys on the line of scrimmage, and, and just, you know, what was going through Toretta's mind in those instances and how he was, you know, what did he do wrong? What he thought he could have done better. If there was anything on a day like that, because sometimes when you're facing an opponent, sometimes they do everything correctly and there's really nothing you can do to counter it. So I, I would be fascinated to hear his side of that uh, from that game specifically. That's obviously a homer pick on my part, but if I'm going to have a zoom call, that's just me on it. That's the kind of stuff I want to hear about. So Oh, totally. No, and I think Toretta is just a fascinating case in general, looking, you know, sort of, especially his place at sort of that late juncture of the first part of the Miami dynasty, and 
you know, I, I, I love that pick. He'd be a fun one to talk to. I kind of thought along a similar vein of, well, not quite a similar vein, but just a fascinating talk. I'd love to talk, it, sit down, you know, on this call with, included in this call, Jim Plunkett, the 1970 winner out of Stanford. And, you know, I'm kind of thinking of that from several veins. You know, from the college football fan standpoint, and, and, you know, as somebody who, as a Pac-12 guy who's, who's got two degrees from the University of Oregon, I'm not the biggest Stanford fan. You know, it doesn't help that they rejected an application to grad school in the past there as well. So I got some beef with Stanford. But, you know, Plunkett obviously loved his time down on the farm. And I'd love to find out from him how it's felt to watch so many Stanford players come so close to the Heisman since he last won the award. You know, we've seen six different Cardinals players finish as the runner-up in the Heisman race over the past 40 years, you know, 50 years since he took that award. You know, we saw John Elway, we saw Andrew Luck, we saw Toby Gerhardt, you know, uh... You know, all of Christian McCaffrey, all of these different guys along the line have just been absolutely talented. And, and what's it like to be the last guy who actually won the award at the school? Because it's been so, you know, it's been a half a century at this point. Um, you know, and then from a, you know, just a general historian, a fan standpoint, as somebody who loves the history of all sports. I, I'm curious about his time at the pro level as well, because, you know, this is obviously a guy who's been a Super Bowl MVP, who won two Super Bowls with the Raiders, but this came late in his career. And I'd really love to ask, you know, was he nervous at any point in his career that he would never find success at the pro level, you know? He, he saw diminishing returns with New England. He gets traded to San Francisco. He ends up signing with Oakland as a backup. And, you know, just sort of kind of, you know, he falls into his lucky chance via injury and then holds off, you know, uh, former BYU phenom Mark Wilson for, to, to keep the job, you know, in, in that reserve role. And ends up winning a couple Super Bowls because of it. And so, you know, I'd love to know for a guy who, who whose career, you know, spans from being top of the world to absolute bottom of the barrel to back to the top. Like, did he ever have any doubts about his abilities? And then, you know, finally, because he's a two-time Heisman winner, because he's a former MVP you know, how does he feel about the fact that the Pro Football Hall of Fame continues to ignore his case for induction? And so, you know, I'd love if he might be monopolizing the conversation even with a guy like Berlanger because I'm fascinated with Plunkett's story on so many levels. I always have been. I always find it fascinating when you have these superstars like that at the college level who don't necessarily find immediate or even ever have success at the professional level how they deal with it because these guys weren't just college football superstars the college football superstars were also high school superstars they were pop warner superstars they were the best of the best their entire careers until they got you know to the professional level and they run into you know all these other guys who were also the best of the best 
for their entire careers. And then I, I'm sure that's a humbling experience. I'm sure even, you know, Gino Torena, for instance, would probably have uh, a lot to say about that as well. So uh, I, I, I'm also fascinated by that selection. And I, I'm going to just jump in with my last pick here because it kind of fits along that same vein. You know, it's a guy who could still have a great pro career potentially, but this is my selfish pick. This is my Helmer pick. I'd want to talk to Marcus Mariota, the 2015 winner out of Eugene with the Ducks. Um, you know, ask him, obviously, you know, some of my selfish questions. What, what does it mean to be the first Heisman winner at Oregon? Um, you know, especially after a couple of guys had a chance before him. You know, you think about Joey Harrington. You think about Dennis Dixon's opportunity that fell short when he got injured in 2007. Um, you, you know, but what does it really mean to him to be that first Heisman winner? And I think it's something you could sit down and ask any Heisman winner who was the first at his school because that is such a distinction. You know, I'd want to know what his proudest moment was as a duck, but honestly, the question I have, it, it, it really, you know, it, it, his career in some ways is kind of mirroring what happened to Jim Plunkett, and it could very potentially continue to mirror that if he's allowed to continue on that path. But, you know, he's had five, he had five different offensive coordinators in five seasons with Tennessee, he, you know, he's now with the the Raiders, you know, kind of a nice tie to Plunkett as well, but they're in Las Vegas, but he's with the Raiders, um, you know, just sort of that, that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, I'd want to ask him, first of all, how important was stability to his success as a doc? The fact that, you know, Chip Kelly left after his his first season as a starter, but he had continuity with Mark Helfrich stepping up as the next man up from offensive coordinator to uh, to the head coaching position. So it's not like he had a ton of flux in his time in the Pac-12. Um, and then, you know, I want to know, does he feel like he's really ever been in a position to succeed at the pro level? You know, obviously... You know, at this point in his career, I might really be wishing this happened 15 years down the road when we know he may or may not have a career. But I think it'd be fascinating to ask him at this point, like, what were the, even if you just ask him in a way that's like, what were the challenges of having five different offensive coordinators in five seasons? And now you're going into your sixth season with a new team and you're going to have a sixth different offensive coordinator you know, you really feel like you've been set up with the tools for success in that regard, and how does it compare to having continuity at Oregon? Yeah, we had the exact same idea on our final picks, because I went with the first ever Heisman winner at the University of Alabama, and that was Mark Ingram. Um, you know, I he obviously talked a lot about how much it meant to him in 2009 when he won the Heisman the first time in Alabama uh, school history. Um you know, but also, you know, 11 years later, what does that mean to him now that he's had time to reflect? What does it mean to him to have been one of the catalysts for this run of dominance Alabama's had over the last decade, right? Because, you know, he was one of the him and guys like Julio Jones, um, Courtney Upshaw, you know, um, Dante Hightower. Those are the kind of guys who came in one of the first big recruiting classes that Saban had ever signed in 08 and Ingram coming from Michigan 
down to, to Tuscaloosa before, you know, this was a dominant program um, of the, you know, 21st century and what went into to, to that and then what, you know, winning that Heisman meant, what winning that first national title for Alabama since 1992 and laying the groundwork for the program that we see today. Um, but also it was a bit uh, nostalgic for me from a standpoint that my first ever credentialed media um, thing that I ever got to do was in 2012, um, a sister side of Saturday Blitz with fan-sided Bama Hammer, which is the University of Alabama, or the Alabama's um, blog, sent me to this pro camp that Mark Ingram was conducting in Tuscaloosa in the summer of 2012. I actually got to sit down and interview him, and he was just incredibly gracious with his time. He's always been a really, really nice guy. Uh, one of those guys who's just ridiculously talented at everything he does, so I'm always fascinated at that. Like He's an amazing golfer as well, so that's always, like I said, right up my alley, but you know, to be able to talk to him about what it's like, I guess, to pee and it turn into gold, you know, because some of these people that are just so good at everything they set their minds to, I'm always fascinated by that because, you know, us regular people have to fight and claw so hard to do, to even be mediocre at so many things. And you have people like that who could do things so well. So, you know, I think he would be, it would be fun to catch up and talk to him again after especially coming full circle from that being the first credential media thing I ever really got to, to do in terms of interviewing somebody uh, of that stature. So I, I would definitely want to, to talk to him. That's fun. I, I, I think that's, that's great, both obviously from the, you know, the idea of the history around Alabama's program, but then also that personal connection. Because that's, you know, it, it's funny because this past weekend uh, – you know, the Bundesliga in Germany started back up soccer this weekend. And if you're a sports fan at all, you obviously know that it happened. And whether or not you love soccer and whether or not you even watch those matches, you know that it was happening. Um, and the thing is, is I sat down on Saturday. I couldn't even sit back down again on Sunday because um, I had other things going on. But I sat down on Saturday and I got to watch those first couple of matches. And honestly, the two things I took away from it were, you know, I'll watch college football in 2020 if it's empty stadiums. Obviously, I'm going to be watching. If I can, if, if I have the time and I can sit down and watch it, I'm, I'm sure as hell going to watch everything that they'll put on my plate. And I'll be writing about it at Saturday Blitz for all of you you know, interested folks out there as well. But at the same time, it's not going to feel like college football at all. You know, I watched the Borussia Dortmund-Schalke derby, you know, rivalry match between these two, you know, these two, two clubs from the Ruhr Valley of Germany, you know, local rivalry, just like we were talking about earlier. That's, you know, in the first segment, that's, that's what matters most in, in any sport. So it matters in soccer as well. Well, you know, Borussia Dortmund's playing at home in an 81,000 seat stadium. That's echoing. You know, you have a couple dozen people sitting there in the stands between the reserve players that aren't in the match yet. And, you know, photographers and whatever else. And, you know, you'll, you'll hear claps and it would just, 
you know, it would echo around an 80,000 seat stadium. That's weird. You know, <laughs> so much of sport, you know, whether it's, you know, whatever kind of football you like, or whether it's basketball coming back, or whether hockey comes back, or whatever, you know, baseball they've talked about coming back. Baseball might be the easiest one, because honestly, you know, friendly confines don't get nearly as crazy as they do for other sports. But even that's going to be weird. You know, just about the only thing that might not be weird is in, you know, a genteel county cricket match. <laughs> um, you know, good old five-day test where you can't get too excited about what's happening at any one moment because you're on a five-day bender, basically. Um... <laughs> But, you know, I, I, I think we'll watch it. I think it's going to be weird. I think so, you know, so much of what matters in soccer and in big rivalries like that is the pageantry, watching the fans, watching the signs that they're holding up and the flags that they're waving and the, you know, the smoke bombs that they're launching up and everything else that goes with that and the chanting and the singing and the cheering and the groaning. And the same thing happens with college football. Like, I think about being in the stands at Autzen Stadium as a student and running my voice ragged, just absolutely hoarse, where you couldn't hear me, you know, we couldn't be doing this podcast because you probably still wouldn't hear me by this point from Saturday. And, you know, that's part of it. You know, the idea of tailgating, the smells and the sights of walking to the stadium and, and hearing people and... <coughs> seeing folks that you've known for years, it all adds up. Yeah, I, to me, it's all going to feel like a spring game, right? The yeah. kind of atmosphere you get in a spring game, even less, I guess. But that's always kind of the thing, because in a spring game, it's hard to know when to cheer and when not to cheer, right? Because you, you know, you're going for both sides, because they're both your team. Uh, so that's the kind of atmosphere that it, it, I see... Uh, when it comes to that, like maybe the fourth quarter of a spring game when it's 110 degrees outside and most of the fans have already left anyway and it's basically over. That's probably what every college football game is going to feel like if we don't get, you know, fans in the stands this year. Yeah, and it just makes me wonder, you know, I think some of these early experiments with bringing back sport and with playing in isolated conditions you know, things are going to adjust, you know, networks are going to adjust, whether it's piped noise, whether it's bringing in, you know, even playing over recordings of previous, you know, games and chants and whatever. It, the technology is there to do any number of things that make it less awkward for the fan at home. Because if you're watching... You know, we're all going to be watching at home for a while. You know, I think, you know, if football comes back in some form this fall and, you know, we put odds on it over, you know, and over-unders and everything else, I'm not going to do that this time. I'm not going to play with odds or percentages or anything. But if it does come back, I can almost guarantee you that a non 100% number of those games will be held with people in the stands. It will not, you know, you will, you know, 
even if some stadiums do bring back people, and I would think you're probably closer to zero than you are to 50 in that instance in terms of percentages. Right as I said, I wouldn't give you any percentages. Take them anyway. But, you know, I, I, I think you're more likely to see fewer games than more games with people in the stands of any number, you know. So, networks need, will start to figure this out. I hope by the time football comes around that the experience feels a little less echoey than it did from Dortmund this weekend. That's going to be... Amen. Yeah. But, you know, in general... Sports are sports. We love sports. We love college football especially. And, you know, when when push comes to shove, we'll be watching. If it if it's on if it's on the television, we'll be watching, we'll be writing, we'll be back talking about that because Lord knows we you know, we try to come up with as many interesting hypotheticals as possible, but in the end I'm sure you all would rather be hearing about us previewing an upcoming season and talking about, you know, games that are actually being played than trying to come up with more hypotheticals in September and October. So. Absolutely. Let's, let's just hope that, that we can do that soon. I, I'm really, it's really weird because this is the time of the year we'd really be starting to think about previewing conferences and stuff like that and it's so hard to get in that mindset because everything just still feels so uncertain yeah exactly you know we could talk about it and you know we're used as writers of sport we're we're well familiar enough with writing some kind of copy and then the game flipping on you in the final five minutes and having to rewrite brand new copy and throwing away what you had you know it but when you're looking at previews across an entire, you know, schedule, it's, for instance, it's hard to preview the Pac-12 right now when you have no clue whether or not four of those teams might even be playing football in 2020. So, we're doing our best, everybody. Honestly, the thing I want to leave you with is hang in there. Stay safe. Stay sane. Stay healthy, most importantly. Take the necessary precautions. If you can stay home, do it. If you have to go out into a public space, wear a mask. If you're not wearing a mask, at least stay the hell away from people, you know? Keep your distance, you know, more than an arm's length. You know, keep your six feet plus. But in general... Stick around. We, we we want you around for the long haul, whether you're a one-time listener or regular. We'd love to have you be able to come back, or at the very least, continue to be part of our college football fraternity. So, thank you all for tuning in this week. We'll be back with you again next Wednesday when I'm a little less hectic from the finish of my, my school year. And, uh, we look forward to chatting with you some more. Take it easy.